0: Psalm 72 is a prayer for peace. A prayer for peace. Now this psalm is eschatological in that it looks prophetically ahead towards the end of history. According to the superscription, it was penned by Solomon. Hence, King Solomon describes the ideal king and his eternal reign over all creation. Now as modern believers, as we read this psalm, we need to reflect on the other prophecies regarding King Jesus' return to establish his kingdom. For example, Isaiah 9, 6 says that that the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from thence on and forevermore. Now as we look at this prayer for peace in Psalm 72 and it looks ahead to a future time, we're going to divide it in several ways. First we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and see prosperity. One of the aspects of his kingdom will be prosperity. Then we'll move down to verses 8 through 11 and see the power. The power. Then verse 12 to 14, the preservation. Verse 15 to 17, the perpetuity, and then finally verses 18 to 20, the praise. Now, we're going to divide this psalm into two parts. So for today, we'll look at verses one through seven, the prosperity, and we'll also consider the power in verses eight through eleven. So let's begin with verse one through seven of uh, the prosperity. Okay, so we're looking at the future king and his kingdom, and it will be one of prosperity. Now, verses one through four we see that prosperity there will be prosperity of righteousness a prosperity of righteousness. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. See, Solomon begins here with a call to God to give the king your judgments. Now notice the plural usage of the word judgments. Judgments. When we see the plural usage of judgments, it can be translated as ordinances, or uh, an older word that you might be familiar with, statutes. Give the king your ordinances. Now this is a reference, these ordinances, to the law or the Torah, which the king will uphold and by which he will rule. And so in the future kingdom, when Christ establishes his kingdom and reigns as king, he will uphold his kingdom and he will rule with Torah, with the law. Notice the parallel clause. Give the king your judgments, O God. Now here's the parallel clause. Your righteousness to the king's son. Now the righteousness refers here to the relationship of his covenant. He he His covenant is one of righteousness. Now again, when we talk about righteousness, we know there's three aspects. There's legal righteousness, moral righteousness, and social righteousness. And all as the three aspects of that righteousness will be seen in the kingdom. First of all, the citizens of the kingdom will be need to be legally righteous. They will need to be declared righteous. Then there's a moral righteous. We will be expected as kingdoms of that citizen to live morally according to God's law. And, of course, then there's the social aspect of righteousness in, in that how we behave, how we act, uh, the things we do, righteous deeds, towards others. But notice that it's given to the king's son. Now, the reason why we have this parallelism here, uh, you know, we have the ordinances and then we have the righteousness, okay? There's parallelism there uh, in the sense that the law is what? The law is right. The law is righteous. The law is the standard that condemns, making us need legal righteousness, but the law also is the standard for moral righteousness, and the law is the standard for our righteous deeds. But notice also the parallelism between the king and the king's son. By setting these statements in parallel, what it suggests here is that the king and the king's son are synonymous. In other words, they're equal, And indeed, that's what we see. God our Father and God the Son are equal. They're synonymous with one another. Two distinct persons, but both are king. One has been king throughout eternity. The other has been appointed king by his Father. Thus, he is the king's son. Now, by, by putting them in parallel, it asserts that the king's son is legitimate and that he stands in the royal line. Now, Go over to the book of Matthew and Luke and look at how both take David's or Jesus' lineage back to David. And the reason we have those genealogies, as we've studied before, is that it establishes the Messiahship. It establishes his right to be the king's son and to reign as king. There's also an interesting uh, statement when you look at the Lucan genealogy in that it tries it goes all the way back to the son of God. So he's the legitimate king of Israel and he's the legitimate king of the universe of the created realm. Now having received God's judgments and his righteousness, the king's judgment will be what? Absolutely fair, it'll be right, it will be just. He will also judge God's afflicted or the poor with justice. Okay? In other words, during uh, the time when the king begins to reign, he will reign with justice. He will judge the poor with justice. Now, in other words, they're no longer going to be abused. You know, in our society, in the world in which we live, the poor, the afflicted, are not judged fairly, they're not judged equally. And we see this going all the way back into the into the Bible era. I mean, remember, the parable of the unjust judge, the poor widow. Uh, he would not give her a fair hearing because she was poor. She was a woman. She was a widow. So all of these things were held against her. Christ, when he comes and reigns, he will reign across the board. With justice, you know, it's interesting. There was a uh, one of the taxes in the Old Testament required of the Jewish people was that every person, whether rich or poor, had to bring half a shekel, half a shekel. And what's what was the point? Why did poor and rich? Because it showed them that they were all equal in God's sight. So the poor will no longer be abused. They will no longer be destroyed. Their day has come, as Jesus says in Luke six twenty. Blessed are you, the poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, the establishment of justice and righteousness is going to do what? It's going to bring peace to the people. It will bring peace to the people. Uh, And it comes from where? It comes from the mountains. Now, it's interesting. Again, look at the parallel. The mountains bring peace, and the hills bring righteousness. And the result is that the king's reign is one of harmony between the land and the people. But whether it's in the mountaintops or the hill country, uh, righteousness and peace are going to be the hallmarks of his kingdom. Uh, Peace, the word peace there, uh, shalom, means wholeness or unity or harmony. And that will be the keynote manifestation of the messianic kingdom. There will be harmony. There will be unity. Why? Because of God's righteousness. Righteousness. There will be a prosperity of righteousness. Now, the theme of the poor returns. Notice at the end of the, uh, in verse 4, we see the king will vindicate the afflicted. And he will what? Save the children of the needy. How? By breaking their oppressor in pieces. Now, this is a special work of the king to care for the poor because no one else has. The rich has done nothing throughout history but exploit and abuse them but the Messiah will lift their burden. You know, And Isaiah prophesies, in Isaiah 61, 6, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? Preach good tidings to the poor. Those who oppress the poor, those who oppress the needy, they will ultimately be destroyed. They will not enter into the kingdom of God. And this promise is fulfilled, even now it's beginning to be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus will, at the cross, began the defeat of the devil. And when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 15, and chapter 20 and verse 10, we see that Jesus is going to subject the nations to his rule, and he's going to defeat the devil. And it's also uh, important for us to remember that when we look back at the earthly ministry of Jesus, what did he spend most of his time doing? Now, you might think he spent most of the time teaching. You might think that he spent most of the time uh, uh, confronting the Pharisees. But actually, when you go through the Gospels, the majority of his time in the Gospel is spent healing and liberating, if you will, the poor. We see even then that he is a righteous king of peace. So there's a prosperity of righteousness. Now, look at verses 5 through 7. We also see there's a prosperity of refreshment, a prosperity of refreshment. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like the rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. So we're now seeing this manifestation of God's covenant through the righteous judgment that his king brings. And the response is fear. Let them fear. Reverence. In Psalm 33, verse 8, Let all the earth fear or reverence the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, see, fear, in this sense, reverence, is an appropriate act of worship before the king. Though he's a king of peace and a king of righteousness, there should be a reverence and awe on our part. He's He's not our good buddy in the sky. He is our king and as such needs to be reverenced as king. And notice that this reverence is going to continue as long as creation lasts, as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. Now he's using hyperbole to express the eternality of worship. And again, there's an eschatological uh, emphasis here. No human king can receive perpetual worship. Every human king that has come and is alive and will come all and in death. They can't receive perpetual worship. Only God's son, only the Messiah, only King Jesus can re- can fulfill this promise that all the generations of the earth will worship him. Now, in response, notice the king does what? He blesses the people, he blesses the land, and here comes that refreshment like rain upon the earth mown grass, like showers that water the earth. The people are prospering, the land are prospering with fruitfulness. Notice that in his days the righteous what? Flourish. And why are they flourishing? Because they've received God's righteousness. He's judging his people with righteousness. He is righteous, and the people will reflect his righteousness. Kingdom citizens will be just like their king. And there will also be an abundance of peace, of wholeness, of harmony, of unity, of tranquility. And so there's a refreshment here in that that the, the land, the people are refreshed, they're fruitful, they're producing what? Righteousness. And so there is a prosperity of righteousness and refreshment in that kingdom. Now let's look at the power of the kingdom. We see the prosperity of the king and his kingdom. Let's look at the power, verses 8 to 11. Verse 8 and 9 gives us the witness to power. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the rivers to from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Now, as Psalm as Solomon is writing this psalm, he's writing from his perspective. So we need to translate this from his perspective. He announces that the blessings of the king will be for all nations. And Solomon notes that he will rule from sea to sea. Now, when we hear sea to sea, we're assuming, okay from Pacific to Atlantic, uh, from one ocean to the next ocean. And it paints that picture of all the nations of the world. But more specifically, we have to read this also from Solomon's perspective. Now, certainly, it's legitimate for us to see from sea to sea and understand the global aspect because we have a much bigger understanding of the world today. From Solomon's perspective, when he says from sea to sea, He's referring from the Mediterranean Sea to the Persian Gulf. But again, understand, from Solomon's perspective, that's all he knew. Okay, He didn't know about the Atlantic, he didn't know about the Pacific, he didn't know about the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So, he writes from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. And again, the idea is that all the nations that encompassed the world, to him, that was the world as he knew it. Uh, also... Uh, the king's rule will extend from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the river here uh, is the Euphrates River. You can cross-reference that to 2 Samuel 10, 16. And and so as far as uh, the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, and as far north as the Euphrates River, which encompasses all of that land, all of those nations, again, they were all of the nations that Solomon knew of, Uh, they're going to submit to him. Now, again, we need to globalize that, Uh, because we have the progress of Revelation, we have the book of Revelation, so we know that this is global from also our perspective. Also notice that the wilderness will submit to him. His enemies will lick the dust. Literally, he's going to take his enemies and drop them to the ground, and their faces are going to be in the dirt before him. Uh, Take some time. Later, look at Isaiah 49 and verse 23. So there's a witness to God's power, uh, and the witness is seen in this global wi- uh, response. Okay? So the king comes with power, he reigns in power, he drops his enemies, and in response the nations worship. Look at verse 10 and 11. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents, the king of kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all the kings bow down before him, and all the nations serve him. Tribute is going to come from the kings of Tarsus and the Isles. Uh, Tarsus is Spain, okay, not to be confused with Tarsus, from where Paul or Saul was from. This is a reference to Spain. The Isles refer to the Mediterranean islands, and which represents the area far to the west of Israel. Uh, Sheba is south in Arabia, and Seba is in Africa. And so he's intentionally making reference uh, to these specific locales. Again, why? Because this is Solomon writing. Uh, go back 1 Kings 4.21, 1 Kings 10.10, and you will see all of these countries are mentioned uh, as part of having some relation with the glories of Solomon's reign. This sampling of rulers, again, represents the whole earth. And so the psalmist concludes, yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. He will reign universally. Now, again, as we've noted, no earthly king could ever fulfill this vision. So we know that this passage is prophetic, it's messianic. You know, in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Philippians two ten and 11, that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. That's what this psalm is all about. We also know that Christ will reign until He puts all enemies under His feet. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. Again, He's going to put their face in the dirt, as we see in this psalm and in Revelation 20, chapter twenty-one and verse twenty-six. What do we see? All the kings of the earth bringing their glory, bringing their tribute to New Jerusalem, to the city of God, to worship God's King, Jesus Christ. We're going to pause there and we'll pick up next time as we continue our study of a prayer for peace in Psalm 72. We'll pick up with verse 12 and we'll see the preservation and the perpetuity and the praise of this kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you because of who your son is, because of what he has done on our behalf, because of his shed blood, because of his high priestly ministry. And, Lord, as we come before you, we acknowledge that you are our king, and that you have appointed your son as king. As king, Father, we submit to you. We serve you. We reverence you. We stand in all of you. And, Father, as we have studied part of this psalm, we see that future in which you will reign over all the earth. But, Father, we confess now that you reign in our hearts. Father, because you are our king, we are totally dependent upon you. And so, Father, we cast ourselves upon you asking for you to meet our needs, to provide for us, to to, uh, lead us, to direct us. Father, we also confess that we are not uh, always submissive. We're not always in right relationship with you. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us that you would restore us, Father, as we cry out to you in repentance, and that we would submit to you as our Lord and as our King. Father, continue to watch over us as our King. Continue to deliver us and, and uh, keep your hand of grace and mercy ever upon us. And Father, we thank you that, uh, for this psalm. We thank you for the kingdom that is coming. And that, Father, it is not a maybe it will come, but it is a certainty that it will come. And that you will declare through your Son your righteousness and your peace throughout all generations. We pray this, Father, to your glory. Amen.